welcome to the Real Marathon Podcast, where we talk about the best in film each and every week. I am your host, Rob Carraher, and today's topic is Judas and the Black Messiah by Shaka King. Judas and the Black Messiah comes out on HBO Max today, February 12th. I'm really excited to talk about this film, uh, the fact that I saw this film at Sundance and it is already here for all of you to watch is a really cool thing for me. Um, So I can't wait to tell you a little bit more about that later in the show. But I want to take a minute here to uh, discuss kind of our theme for today. And with it being February, which is Black History Month. I wanted to put a focus on specifically black directors. It has historically been, well, the film industry has historically not been uh, very friendly to black filmmakers. And because of that, most of us, uh, at least most of us white folks, we we haven't been um, engaged with many of the films that black filmmakers have made over the years. And only more recently have we started to see some big name uh, black directors really break through into that mainstream filmmaking world. And frankly, that's a shame. Uh, I, I am somewhat embarrassed by how few uh, black directors I know and also how few of their films I have actually watched. Um, so this year I have tried to, what well, with the pandemic and being stuck inside, I've been watching more movies. And so I, tr- I have tried to dive into uh, certain film circles that I, I maybe haven't uh, explored more often um, and one of the things that I noticed as I was looking for films to watch on certain streaming apps was that many films made by black filmmakers are not readily available on streaming services many of them you have to pay to rent and I think this it's somewhat upsetting. It's not that I don't want to pay that money, um, because I will. I will gladly pay to rent a film uh, if that is something that I want to see. And I did that a few times this summer, Um, but, or this past summer, uh, but I think it's a shame because these films are not being seen by wide audiences who don't pay those extra few dollars to rent a film. They, they only watch what's on the catalogs on these streaming services. So when the films that are being provided in these catalogs aren't representative of uh, minority groups, I think that's problematic. And so I'm gonna try to make a more concerted effort to start watching films by uh, filmmakers who represent a minority group uh, because I I think that that helps kind of break up um, that the monotony of seeing the same perspective over and over and over and over again. I talked about in the Promising Young Woman episode about how women haven't really been well represented, specifically at the Oscars. Uh, Very rarely are women getting nominated. And this year may be a year where we have uh, potentially more women nominated in the Best Director category than uh, men. And that that would be really cool, Uh, especially because they all deserve it and it's not just trying to right some wrong. Um, But we we see these, these minority groups not not well represented uh, within the film industry and they're often getting left out 
We had uh, a few years back the Oscar so white uh, trend that was going on and how the Academy hasn't done well to represent those voices that, that typically aren't heard. Um, so I want to celebrate today uh, five black filmmakers that I think are exceptional. Um, they have pretty big names and I haven't seen uh, all of their catalogs and in some cases I haven't seen it anywhere close to their their full catalogs. Um, but I'm hoping that by focusing on these filmmakers today that will uh, help motivate me to go out and watch some of these filmmakers films and hopefully it will help you to also go see their films. Um, something that I have realized is that many times there are uh, perspectives that are brought forth by uh, these minority filmmakers such as well whether that's women or um, any any racial group that that bring a, a unique viewpoint on not just society but on filmmaking and those things interest me I want to see interesting films that have unique perspectives and so uh, I, I'm hoping to shed more light on these films that aren't being played mainstream all the time um, and, and hope to, to make some really good recommendations that show that uh, there is a much larger scope within the cinema world that is worth uh, looking into and seeing these films and not being stuck uh, in what are the big box office grabs or what have uh, historically been the big Oscar players. So uh, that's what we have to look forward to and uh, I will be talking about those five additional directors other than Shaka King who directed Judas and the Black Messiah right after my review of Judas and the Black Messiah. Right after this break, we will be back with the news. Let's talk some news. So, this past week, we received the nominations for the Critics' Choice Awards, and this is one of the last big shows to release their nominations before uh, we get the Oscar nominations. So a lot of critics out there, or uh, Oscar pundits, they, they look toward the uh, Critics' Choice Awards in order to get a clearer picture of what may get nominated for best or for Oscars when the Academy Awards announce their nominations um, later next month. Now, I I think it's a little funny, uh, kind of like the Golden Globes, that we put so much weight um, in an award show that doesn't have crossover with the Academy. It's a different voting body and so things could drastically change uh, from what we see there. It probably won't and there generally is um, actually a lot of crossover but to put a lot of weight in this is uh, somewhat foolish um, simply because the Academy can go a completely different direction. That's why uh, it was important to see what the SAG uh, awards nominations were because they do actually have some bearing on that. Um, but the Critics' Choice is often considered one of, more, one of the more legitimate award shows because critics see a lot of different films, a lot of films. 
and uh, so their opinions do matter. Um, they also often push the academy in a certain direction. If they're talking films up, then there's a lot of buzz about it, um, and then that's that ends up having an impact on what the academy does. So I guess there is some weight to it, um, maybe just not as much weight as other Oscar pundits want you to believe. But we're still going to talk about it, and I'll still cover the show when we get to, uh, when it actually actually happens. Um, but uh, I, I do want to point out that uh, there there is some foolishness in acting as though this has real bearing on what actually happens with the Academy Awards. So the Critics' Choice Awards, they nominated The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank, Minari, News of the World, Nomadland, One Night in Miami, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, in the trial of the Chicago Seven. So one uh, major omission is Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, there, there was some interest in whether or not that would be included here, but it's such a late player to the game that it may not be on this list, but it, we still could see it end up on the uh, best picture nomination list for the Academy Awards. I guess we're just going to kind of have to see. Because it's a funky year, it's hard to predict what might happen with that. Um, in regard to the other categories at the Critics' Choice, we don't get a lot of information because they, they will nominate anywhere between uh, five to seven nominees. And so basically everybody that is being considered as a potential nominee at the Academy Awards ends up getting nominated. So it doesn't really make the picture any clearer in regard to um, who may be gaining momentum or who may be falling off the map. There might be a little bit of digging in we can do. Um, something like Best Supporting Actor, uh, Jared Leto for The Little Things did not end up on the Critics' Choice uh, nomination list, but critics have mostly been rejecting that film, um, and we saw that SAG nominated Jared Leto, so they, they are embracing that a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, I still think it's important to talk about this because um, it is a big award show, and it could create momentum for any, uh, any person involved with any of these films. The top films nominated were uh, Mank and Minari. They got the most nominations. I should note that Mank may end up getting more nominations at the Oscars than anyone else, and it may end up walking away with one or maybe only a few actual wins, um, which, which is going to be kind of interesting. And that's not unprecedented. It happens. A film may be really good in a lot of different areas. It just may not be the best in any area. Um, so that might be kind of what we're seeing. Uh, in addition, Wednesday, the Academy, uh, they, they released some short lists for a few different categories. And what I really like about the fact that the Academy releases, releases these short lists is that for somebody like me, who I don't have access to seeing a ton of films each and every year, um, like a lot of these critics do, and because I am still an amateur critic, um, it's awesome to be able to narrow down what films are in consideration and uh, trying to start watching some of those films that I haven't seen yet. Um, so they, they released lists for nine different categories, uh, and these lists range anywhere from uh, 10 to 15 films, depending on the category. Uh, I have included these lists in the notes for this podcast with where you can currently 
access the films, whether they're on streaming services or you have to rent them, or maybe they're just not available yet. Um, but I've included where all those things are, so if you want to watch some of these, uh, you know where you can watch them. So the lists are Best Documentary, uh, Best Short Documentary, Best International Film, Best Makeup and Hair, Best Score, Best Song, Best Animated Short, Best Live Action Short, and Best Visual Effects. Uh, as a whole, they weren't too bad. Uh, you always expect some snubs, but the one area that seems like it might be a little ridiculous is the best visual effects. For some reason, they did not nominate the film The Invisible Man, and that breaks my heart. Uh, they did nominate Tenet, which I think Tenet probably should win this award, but The Invisible Man's visual effects are amazing. I love that film simply because of the visual effects. So if you haven't seen it, that's on HBO Max, um, and it's not going to get nominated for uh, Best Visual Effects uh, because it didn't make the shortlist, but you should definitely see it. Um, in addition, that film was nominated for Best Score, which makes it even more of a head-scratcher why it didn't get nominated for Best Visual Effects. Or, I mean, why it made the shortlist. It didn't get nominated, made the shortlist for Best Score. Um, so, something to, to take into consideration, uh, that Visual Effects Guild, whoever's making the decisions there, uh, I don't know what they were doing, if they wanted to highlight some other films, but uh, that's kind of, kind of where we are at in terms of that. Um, and then on Wednesday, in addition, they uh, announced um, the, that, that the Academy Awards is going to be live broadcast from multiple locations. Uh, and they're, they're still planning on doing a in-person live event, but they want to make it more flexible. So they announced they're going to, to be having it broadcast live from multiple locations. Um, they're going to be releasing some more details about that as we get a little bit closer, but that is something to note. All right, when we come back after this break, we will do a recap of the upcoming events that you can be looking forward to over the next month or so. All right, we are back with events and I haven't added anything new this week, um, so I'm just going to go through and uh, read the events that I already had scheduled, but uh, I haven't decided what I wanted to review for the uh, March 26th show. If you have recommendations of a film that you would like me to review, uh, please Leave that in the comments of my Facebook page, on Twitter. You can send me an email, um, whatever uh, way you want to contact me. I'd be happy to take a recommendation. Um, I'd, I'd like to start reviewing some stuff that some of you may want me to review. Of course, it still has to kind of fit in with uh, the theme of this show. I'm not going to review a crappy movie just because you want to see me do that. Um, so give me some recommendations. I may end up taking some of those. Um, otherwise, I will find something to fill that, that next spot. But uh, next week, we are going to be reviewing Wolf Walkers, the animated film that can be watched on Apple TV+. Plus. So that is going to be on Febru February 19th. The following week, we will be reviewing Nomadland uh, on February 26th on... March 5th is our Real Marathon spoiler show, and we will be doing the miniseries Small Axe, which can be watched on Amazon Prime. 
Uh, and once again, that's going to be a spoiler show. So if that is something that you would like to listen to, you either have to be okay with me spoiling some things or you should just watch it. I think it'd be way cooler if you watch it and uh, kind of get to hear some of the, the things that we're talking about. Um, I may try to even bring in a few guests for that show. We're going to see uh, if we can, we can work that out logistically. Um, that might be our first show that we do with multiple people. Um, the following week on March 12th, we will be doing a review of Minari. And then on March 19th, I will be doing a review of the international film Another Round. It is uh, going to probably be the front runner for international film as long as it makes the cut. It did make the shortlist. Um, so as of right now, that is the front runner. Um, another round you can rent. Um, Minari, you will be able to rent eventually here. Like I said, Small Axe is on Amazon Prime. Nomadland will be on Hulu starting on February 19th. And then, like I said, Wolf Walkers is going to be on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, so that is all the events I have for now. Uh, until next week, we will leave it at that. When we come back from this break, we will be doing the review for Judas and the Black Messiah. we are back to talk about the film Judas and the Black Messiah which can be reviewed on HBO Max starting today so to start off I want to talk about this film from a historical context it being Black History Month uh, it seems appropriate that this film would be released during this time period because this is a story about an individual who frankly we we really as a country don't know that much about uh, that individual being Fred Hampton some of you may know him um, but for the majority of Americans they probably have never heard of this guy the premise of this film is uh, Fred Hampton, who is the chair of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Uh, we see the story play out as William O'Neill, who is another character played by Lakeith Stanfield. He works with the FBI to betray Fred Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya. And I don't want to say too much more than that. If you don't already know the story, uh, it, it, it may be more interesting or more intriguing to watch this film play out, uh, not knowing what happens. Um, but this is an important story because of the way that it has been por portrayed throughout our country's history and maybe not as truthful as it, as it could be. So, from a historical standpoint, being able to get a relatively fresh historical story is, is quite impressive. And I think this kind of goes back to some of the things that I was talking about in the intro that so much of our, our viewpoint, so much of our perspective, uh, specifically as white people in this country, is through a white person lens. And so to see history play out, not the history of slaves and the civil rights movement as we know it, but um, real black history and what, what has happened that, that we are blind to because we can be blind to it. 
Um, I think there needs to be more stories told uh, from that perspective. And I think one of the best ways to do that is through dramatic cinema. Uh, the, the exciting part about this film is that it, it takes essentially a very well-known biblical context of uh, Judas betraying Christ and it, it parallels with what happened during this, this time period with Fred Hampton and William O'Neill. Um, and, and I was, as somebody who, who grew up with a very religious background and frankly still ha I have a very uh, extreme interest in the story of Christ and specifically uh, that relationship with Judas, which I think has stemmed from my love of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, which is ultimately all about that. Uh, that, that part of this film, the almost allegory aspect of it, um, was very, very intriguing. And I tried to watch the film through that lens Although I didn't always do so, and I would love to watch this film again, um, completely thinking about it in terms of that, and see how I become even more immersed in what is going on um, as a result of that. Um, so I think, I think that, at least from the standpoint of uh, most folks who, who religion probably has played, in the United States at least, uh, religion has played a huge role in a lot of folks' um, lives. Not everyone, and I, I don't mean to exclude anyone, um, but we at least know the, the story of Jesus Christ, and to be able to watch this film through that lens is quite powerful. Um, and there are probably some folks that, that because it is portrayed in that way, this film could be offensive to them. Don't think it should be. And maybe you need to reevaluate the way that you see the world if that is the way that you, you are perceiving this as being offensive. Um, but uh, I, I, I can see that being the case. Um, but I think it's, it's an interesting perspective and the vision is pretty cool because of that. Now, I give this film four out of five stars. Uh, from a technical standpoint, this film is nearly perfect. Uh, it does everything well. Everything extremely well. Um, and to an extent, it it's almost at times a little too polished and that's pro that that is part of why I uh, only gave it four out of five stars rather than either a four and a half or five star rating um, and it, it is just it kind of to me it kind of has a feel like the film Argo in that it's hard to find a lot of faults with it but it, it's kind of missing um, something that makes it stand apart, at least techni technically, from other films. Um, just because it is a so well-made movie. And it's, it sounds funny, me here talking about this uh, and criticizing it for being perfect. Um, but there, there, it, it just—I don't know. There, there's just something about it uh, that that leaves just a little bit left to be desired. Uh, the cinematography is brilliant. Um, the the editing is brilliant. The score is fantastic. Uh, it's just a really, really well-crafted film. Um, but really where the film shines is in its performances. Uh, Daniel 
Kaluuya, who technically is the supporting actor in this film and is probably now the favorite to win Best Supporting Actor, uh, he's amazing as Fred Hampton. He he embodies him in a way that uh, you just believe in this character. Um, maybe, to an extent, the film could have revolved even more around him. Uh, but I think part of what makes this film more charming is the fact that he is the supporting character and there's this almost longing to see more of him because every single time that he is on screen, he is captivating. And he, he is Fred Hampton, and you believe that. And you understand why the person Fred Hampton was so successful at what he did. It's because he's charismatic. And Daniel Kaluuya does a fantastic job of capturing that. Um, that is not to say that Lakeith Stanfield is not as good. He is. It's just that Daniel Kaluuya, uh, he ends up stealing the show. Um, Lakeith Stanfield was cast quite well in this role and uh, does a good job of really showing the extremes of this character um, and this person. And uh, he probably will not end up getting nominated for Best Actor because there's a lot of really great performances out there. And this just doesn't stand out uh, among that group. But he does an excellent job. And as the lead actor in this film, um, does a, a fine job of carrying, um, carrying the film. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about these characters in a little bit. Uh, and then... Dominique Fishback, who plays Deborah Johnson, uh, who is Fred Hampton's girlfriend um, or love interest in this film, she she ha pulls off this very nuanced, um, sort of subtle performance that is very very good and probably should be recognized by the Academy, but my gut tells me that she is going to get left off. Um, but she is a strong point, and there's this balance between these three characters, um, and, and she kind of helps to balance that out. Um, and, and she is very good. Some of the best scenes in the film are with her and Daniel Kaluuya, and you just believe it. You just believe that, uh, that, that, they belong together and um, when they're on screen together it's really the heart of this film all right in kind of breaking down where I have the biggest problem with this film I, after I watched this it it didn't hit me as hard as uh, I wanted it to. I wanted to walk away from this and absolutely just be blown away. And I think I was disappointed because I didn't know why I didn't have that feeling because I loved so much about this. Um, and I'm thinking maybe, maybe it's because I already knew the story. Um, maybe it was because it almost seemed too polished, but... It, in the end, it, I just couldn't figure it out. So it took me a few days, and in discussing uh, this with the two people that I ended up watching the film with, we came to a conclusion that this is very much a kind of straightforward story, and they're trying to tell the history of this event. And it's not so much about a character study. And the characters are somewhat neutral. Shaka King doesn't, Shaka King and the, uh, the group of writers um, who, who helped come up with this, this screenplay, 
uh, they are more interested in trying to portray this on a neutral playing field and not making you feel um, strongly emotionally attached to these characters beyond what you're seeing play out on screen. Don't get me wrong, there are some quite emotional points in this film, but it's because of the context of what is going on and less about uh, what you know or feel about these characters. Um, and I think that had this been something like a miniseries, where you have more character development and you really get to know these characters as people and you get that emotional buy-in, um, maybe I would have grasped onto it a little stronger. And so um, even though I was somewhat disappointed that I didn't have the, that emotional attachment, I, I have to applaud uh, Shaka King and uh, Will Burson and uh, Kenneth Lucas uh, for, and Keith Lucas um, for coming up with the story and staying true to the concept of telling history as it was meant to be told. Uh, and, and so I, I can't fault them for that. Um, even still, like I said, I gave the film four out of five stars. I would highly recommend it. Um, and, and I'd be interested to see what what some some folks who ha don't know the story of Fred Hampton uh, what they think of this film. Um, once again, you can watch this film on HBO Max. I hope you do that today, and I can't wait to to hear what you think. When we return, we will be talking about five black directors who have made an impact on my life and some of the films that they have made. And I hope that uh, you will end up getting to go out and see some of these, uh, these directors. So when we come back, we'll talk about those directors. So we are back, and we're going to talk about five uh, film directors, five black film directors. And um, as I said in the intro, uh, I'm somewhat ashamed that, frankly, I just haven't uh, seen a lot of movies made by black directors. Uh, but in my defense, they haven't been uh, touted as much as they probably should have been. Um, there just aren't as many prominent ones out there. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, through this conversation, I not only motivate myself, but my listeners to uh, go out and seek out some of these black voices. So the five that I chose, uh, they have not only had an impact on me, but I also have chosen them because uh, they are the type of director uh, that that should be on every film goers or film watchers uh, list of directors that when they come out with something, you should be checking it out. Um, and I wish that I could take my own advice and frankly I'm going to uh, as I, I start to work through this process. Um, and so in a way, we're kind of doing this together. Um, I'm sure that for some of these uh, directors, you have already seen some of their projects. Um, for some of them, maybe you haven't seen any of their projects. Um, but there's a reason that I chose these five, because you will be hearing their names if you haven't already. Um, and Or they've been around. One of them specifically has been around for a while, uh, for a long time, and has a, a household name. Um, but maybe not a ton of people have seen a good portion of his catalog. So the, the five uh, directors are Ava DuVernay, um, Barry Jenkins, Ryan Coogler, Spike Lee, and Steve McQueen. 
not the uh, old actor Steve McQueen, but the the current director Steve McQueen. Um, and Steve McQueen is actually the director of the Small Axe miniseries, which we'll be reviewing here in a few weeks. So if you want to get on it already, um, that's a good place to start. Um, and so I'll be watching those films and doing a review of that. So we're we're already off to a good start here. Um, Steve McQueen, though, is uh, the one best picture for the film Twelve Years a Slave. Um, but he has uh, also directed a, the more recent film Widows, which I haven't seen yet. Um, and it's been on my list and it's been toward the top of my list of films to see for quite some time. I just haven't got around to it yet. Um, I'm not sure if it's on any of the streaming services. It was for a while. Um, but like I said, when I go to look for some of these films, when the, the time comes that I want to watch them, uh, I can't find them as uh, a, a film that's on one of, one of the streaming services. Um, so that, there's potential that that is. I think it was on HBO last, last time I checked. Um, don't know if it's still there uh, offhand. Um, but that is one that I do want to watch. That one is probably uh, one of his more mainstream movies. Um, 12 Years a Slave became mainstream, but uh, 12 Years a Slave is still one of those films that uh, it's a difficult film to watch. The idea of, um, you know, watching the way that that people treated slaves that's that's hard to watch uh and it's not one of those films that's that is enjoyable um in to be completely honest that's kind of the way that steve steve mcqueen works he had two previous films that i had seen um one called shame and the other called hunger uh, and both of those films are also a little bit uh, difficult to watch. Hunger is a, a biography um, about a man named Bobby Sands who leads uh, a hunger strike in Northern Ireland um, within their prison. And uh, it's, it's just one of those films where it's uncomfortable as you're watching this person starve themselves uh and starve themselves or himself uh throughout throughout this film uh, the other one is shame which is about a sex addict um and uh that one is it is a very very raw film uh it's not the type of film that i would typically recommend to uh the average moviegoer just because it, it it's uncomfortable at times, and um, it, like I said, it's just very raw. Uh, C. McQueen has a habit of working with the actor Michael Fassbender, who was in Hunger, he was in Shame, and he was in 12 Years a Slave. Uh, Shame also has Carrie Mulligan in it, um, and it's a really well-made, really well-made film. Uh, I think it is honestly one of the only films that I saw in the theater that is rated NC-17 for its graphic uh, content. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, it is kind of gives you an idea of the type of filmmaker that Steve McQueen is. Um, he's about showing what is happening um, in a very raw way. Um, so I'm going to be interested to see kind of ha- how he has evolved uh, as a filmmaker um, since the last film that I saw was uh, 12 Years a Slave back in 2013. Um, and now, now that we are seven to eight years later, uh, how, how a f- film series like Small Axe, which has been getting a ton of praise and it's very much the same way that his other films had, uh, how, how he has evolved as a filmmaker and, and to see if um, he's lost a little bit of that rawness that, that was apparent in some of his previous films. Um, so that's Steve McQueen. Uh, and once again, please check out Small Axe. I can't wait to talk about that. Um, next film 
filmmaker on here that I'm going to talk about is Spike Lee. And Spike Lee is the filmmaker that we uh, probably all should know. And if you don't, then you've probably been living in a box. Um, he's had a very, very long career and a very successful career. Uh, although he has had some trouble breaking through, uh, specifically when it comes to awards. I've only seen a handful of his films, but um, I really became a fan of his with Black Klansman from 2018, which should have won Best Picture. Um, and this is kind of a good argument for how Hollywood needs to shift their their perspective. Uh, that year, Black Klansman got beat out by uh, The Green Book, which is a film um, about a white man um, and his his role uh, in in helping a, a black man um, and a white filmmaker made it and it it seems like you know they, we, we have heard or seen seen this story over and over and over and over again and I'm Green Book was a well, well-made movie, um, and I, I thought it was it was a pretty good movie, um, but it wasn't unique. And once again, it was a white perspective of something that essentially is a black issue. Um, and so, I would have much rather seen Black Klansmen win that year for Best Picture. It would have been well deserved. Um, and uh, that that was Spike Lee's best chance to win, to win best director and best best picture. Um, and the Academy didn't do it. Um, if you haven't seen Black Klansman, I highly highly recommend it. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. Favorite one of my favorite of all time. I've seen it now multiple times, and I don't watch uh, movies multiple times. I think I've seen it like five or six times. Um, it's a great film. Uh, he also did The Five Bloods, which is in play for a lot of Oscars this year. It will be, at least. Um, and I didn't care for it as much. Uh, I really, really wanted to love it because I loved Black Klansman so much. And uh, it has some pacing issues. But I appreciate his vision. Spike Lee is a very innovative filmmaker, and um, regardless of whether or not you love the film, you have to give him credit for thinking outside the box. There's nobody quite like him, and uh, it should be treated as such. Um, the next filmmaker is Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler actually might be the one that we most, most people have seen the most uh, more of his films um, because he made Black Panther and a lot of people saw Black Panther. He also made the film Creed um, and both of those were, were pretty big box office, box office successes and uh, he has made black cinema more mainstream and should frankly be applauded for doing that. Um, and taking characters that uh, typically uh, would would have been filled with a a white person, uh, the superhero or the star athlete, and made two films that that even though blackness is uh, a theme, that is not at the core of what the what the story is. It doesn't have to be. Um, and I think that's something that the film world needs more of. You need you need films that are about people that star black actors, in less films about blacks people suffering, because that's a lot of what we get. And even some of these films that that we're talking about is a little bit, or some of these directors that we we are talking about, they made some films that are still about uh, black suffering. Um, but there needs to be more films made 
that are just about everyday life that happen to be from a black perspective. And Ryan Coogler has done a great job of that. He did make a movie called Fruitvale Station, um, devastating, devastating film um, about Oscar Grant, who was killed in 2008 uh, by the police. And uh, it's a a devastating film, but I highly, highly recommend it. It's a great film. Um, Ryan Coogler is going to be a special director for many years to come. Can't wait to see what he does. This next director, Barry Jenkins, I've actually only ever seen one of his films, but it is so stunning. Uh, That film is Moonlight. Um, When Moonlight won best picture over La La Land I was ecstatic Uh, Moonlight wasn't my favorite film that year but I didn't care I was so happy that it won best picture it is a cool 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 film Um, and it's a unique uh, concept Uh, I, I would highly recommend checking that film out and the acting in it is great the way it looks is great Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor for the film. Um, yeah, it, it's a cool movie. Like I said, still the only movie directed by Barry Jenkins that I have seen. I really, really want to see If Beale Street Could Talk, which came out in 2018, uh, along with Widows. It's toward the top of my list of films that I missed that I need to see, and so I'm going to be checking that out hopefully soon. Um, so that I can add a second film uh, to to uh, my my list of films that I've seen by Bar- uh, Barry Jenkins, but he's going to be a strong voice in the film world for many years to come, and I cannot wait to see what what he has up his sleeve next. All right, uh, the final director that I uh, want to talk about is Ava DuVernay, who. The first film that I saw by her was Selma, and she kind of has this this double whammy of being a woman and being black in the year that Selma uh, was up for Oscars. Uh, it was complete disrespect that she did not get nominated for Best Director that year. Um, she should have. That film is great. Uh, it is well-crafted has fantastic performances has an important story um, that's slightly different from uh, everything that we we had known about Martin Luther King up to the that point um, and and it, it's just a really important film but the best film that she made is a documentary called 13th and that's on Netflix and if you haven't seen it yet it is a must see uh, we talk about the idea of correcting history and telling history from the black person's perspective. Uh, this is this is a film that's exactly that, um, and and I, I I cannot say it enough. This needs to be uh, it, it it just sim- it simply it just needs to be a must see on your list. Um, I really want to see the miniseries When They See Us about the uh, Central Park Five young men. Um, I haven't been able to bring myself to do it because I know it's going to be devastating, Um, but I I have only heard good things about it, and I cannot... At some point, I will end up watching that film. Um, Once again, Ava DuVernay, I cannot wait to see what else she does. Um, She's going to be a fantastic black voice in the cinema world for many, many years to come. When we come back from this break, we will be talking about, uh, we were going to review our last week's trivia answers, and we will be uh, giving you your new trivia questions for this week. Right, 
let's do some trivia. So first of all, let's let's go back and look at last week's questions and uh, give some answers. And then we'll have some new questions for today. So question number one from last week. Though this year's festival was held remotely due to the pandemic, the Sundance Film Festival moved its permanent home, moved to its permanent home in what U.S. city in 1981? That would be Park City, Utah. Park City, Utah. Uh, I presume it will be back there next year. Question number two. In 1985, Joel and Ethan Cohen made their directorial debut at Sundance when they won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Dramatic Film for what film? That would be Blood Simple. Question number three. What director got his start in 1992 at the festival with his crime thriller starring Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, Steve Buscemi, Chris Penn, and Tim Roth. That would be Reservoir Dogs. And Quentin Tarantino actually starred in that film as well. Um, oh, that would be Reservoir Dogs with, uh, by Quentin Tarantino. I'm sorry. The answer is actually Quentin Tarantino. Uh, question number four. This film made with a budget of just $400,000 premiered at the film festival and paid its main star a measly $1,000. In the end, the film ended up grossing $46 million and became famous for its dance number performed to a Jamiroquai song. This would be Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon Dynamite. And question number five. Lucy Alibar received her first writing credit at the Sundance Film Festival in 2012 with the film Beasts of the Southern Wild. She has been at tasked with adapting what best-selling novel written by Delia Owens about an outcast woman surviving in the marshes of the Deep South. That would be Where the Crawdads Sing, which is a fantastic book and all of you should read it, um, but I can't wait to see what they do with that film. All right, so we got this week's uh, trivia questions. Question number one. Shaka King initially thought of Judah and the Messiah as the departed inside the world of the counterintelligence program. Which famed director won his first best picture with The Departed in 2007? Shaka King initially thought of Judas and the Black Messiah as the departed inside the world of the counterintelligence program, which famed director won his first best picture with the departed in 2007. Question number two. Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, and Lil Rel Howery all worked together in Judas and the Black Messiah. They previously worked together in what 2017 horror thriller? Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, and Lil Rel Howery all worked together in Judas in the Black Messiah. They previously worked together in what 2017 horror thriller? Question number three. Martin Sheen portrays J. Edgar Hoover in Judas and the Black Messiah. What Academy Award-winning actor also portrayed him in the Clint Eastwood 2011 biopic, J. Edgar? Martin Sheen portrays J. Edgar Hoover in Judas and the Black Messiah. What Academy Award-winning actor also portrayed him in the Clint Eastwood 2011 biopic, J. Edgar? Question number four. Fred Hampton made an appearance in another Oscar-worthy film in 2020 and was portrayed by Kelvin Harrison Jr. What was the name of that film? Fred Hampton made an appearance in another Oscar-worthy film in 2020 and was portrayed by Kelvin Harrison Jr. What was the name of that film? In question number five, there have only ever been six black directors to be nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, none of which have won. Can you name the six directors? The first was nominated in 1991. There have only ever been six black directors to be nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, none of which have won. Can you name the six directors? The first was nominated in 1991. 
So that's all I have for this week's show of the Real Marathon Podcast. Join us next week when we review Wolf Walkers. Once again, can be watched on Apple TV Plus if you wish to watch it prior to our show. I hope you all have a great week, and I can't wait to see you next week. Thank you.